Hello and welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast. I'm your host, DJ Pajowski. My guest today is Keith Cutton. Uh, Keith is a Canadian golf course architect who had a hand in shaping both courses at Cabot, as well as a number of other projects working with Rod Whitman. Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk to him today is because he's in the process of releasing his first book, which is called The Evolution of Golf Course Design. Uh, we obviously don't do many book reviews in the Golfer's Journal, uh, but I had a chance to check out an advanced copy of the book, and right after seeing it, I asked him if he wanted to come on the podcast to discuss it. Uh, it's an absolutely striking book. Uh, as the title would suggest, it takes a look at how golf course design has changed throughout the past two centuries. You know, The first half of the book is a decade-by-decade look, not only design trends, but really at all the social and economic forces that that kind of shifted the golf course design industry. And then the second half features uh, kind of vignettes and mini biographies of all of the most famous names you know you would have heard of in, in golf course design. Uh, the reason I think I like it so much is the world of golf course architecture can be extremely intimidating if you're just getting into it. Uh, but Keith's book is a, really a, a great crash course to see how all these pieces fit together. And I was just really excited to talk with him more about it. Before we get into my interview with Keith, I wanted to give a reminder that issue number six of the Golfer's Journal is shipping extremely soon. Uh, And anyone who has ever seen or held or read the Golfer's Journal knows what a fantastic gift it makes for any golfer in your life. Uh, We even have a new feature on the website. You can pick which day you want your gift recipient to be notified about their subscription. Uh, Obviously perfect for the holidays. Uh, So go to golfersjournal.com slash gift to give a subscription or merch. Uh, It's a super simple way to get someone crossed off of your shopping list. Uh, give them something that reminds them throughout the year of what a thoughtful gift giver you are. It will keep popping up in their mailbox and you will you will keep getting credit. It's a fantastic gift. Uh, and as always today, we are made possible by the people who buy the subscriptions I was just talking about, as well as our six sponsors, Scotty Cameron, Link Soul, Titleist, New York Private Bank and Trust, Electric Sunglasses, and Links and Kings. And now let's get to my chat with the writer of The Evolution of Golf Course Design, Keith Cutton. You're getting preview copies now and everything. When when does like the book actually come out, and, and what's it like to you know hold it in person and, and do all that stuff? Well, uh, I'll answer the second part of your question there first because it's something that uh, my wife and I have been waiting for for quite a long time is actually hold the book. Um, I got my first preview copy about a week and a half ago, and I'm literally waiting for my next two copies to show up today and. Um, the, the the remaining books are all packaged and one pallet's ready to go on a plane bound and I should have it here in about two weeks and the remaining pallets are actually boarding a ship and should be here early December-ish. So um, I've actually sold out about half that first pallet that will is guaranteed for Christmas uh, and the others I can't really guarantee it but the cost to the cost to air ship or air freight versus ship freight is. Uh, night and day so right um it's uh but it's something that i wanted to make sure that people that have been sort of following me for a while and following my progression because this this book started as a thesis five years ago um some people have literally been following me since that time <laughs> and been waiting for this book since that since that point so yeah uh, i wanted to make sure they had it for uh for christmas so i made sure to pay a little bit extra to get that uh here in time what was the crux but, what was the crux of the thesis uh, the thesis was basically what the book is about. It's looking at the evolution of golf course architecture, but looking at it in a way that nobody else really has. It's, 
Um, everybody else, if you look at, and I own a lot of golf architecture books, most people look at a specific architect and their portfolio of work. So what they did, the projects, and they analyze that, uh, whether it be biographies or club histories or what have you. Um, and then there's the, there's a few books that dive a little bit deeper, like Jeff Shackelford's uh, Golden Age of Golf Course Design, but it's really era-specific. And still, when you go through it, he sort of breaks up people into um, schools of architecture and then looks at them individually. Um, there's a little bit of crossover, you know, when it comes to Philadelphia or something like that. Right. But it, there's really no answer as to why things happened. So my thesis dove into looking at uh, economy, wars, allied professional um, disciplines such as architecture, engineering, um, art and landscape architecture, and really tried to paint a bigger picture as to why things happened. And that's the big, that's the big emphasis of the book is, you know, whether you're a seasoned golf architect, or somebody that's just brand new to golf architecture, or even just loves golf and history. Um, there wasn't really a book that spoke to why things happen and why a golf course from the 1960s looks very differently, very different from a course from the golden age of architecture, the 1920s and 30s, uh, or of course from the 1910s versus now. Uh, you know, it's not just about length and width and everything else. There's other elements to it. So the actual architecture, and I knew that sort of subconsciously, having been in the industry, and uh, I have a background working with uh, Rod Whitman here in Canada, and I knew about this, but really there was nothing that sort of put it together in a single book that you could pick up and understand. So the thesis sort of was me answering my own questions and painting that full picture for myself. And that just sort of led me to going, maybe other people would be interested in this. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's, and that's now it's been, you know, I finished that thesis, uh, four, four years ago, three and a half years ago. And I've been working tirelessly since then, uh, turning it into a book. Well, so let's let's get into that a little bit. I want to get into all the stuff you kind of touched on there and, and the actual meat of the book shortly. But what is your background? And, uh, you know, if I'm understanding it correctly, you kind of navigating shipping options and uh, the book publishing industry is a new a new chapter in your uh, in your career. Is that right? It is. And <laughs> I've been I've been really lucky to have uh, Paul Daly, who is an Australian writer, editor, and publisher. He owns his own publishing company, Full Swing Golf Publishing. Um, he's a friend of mine, and he was nice enough when I finished my thesis and was shopping around for somebody to help me with this book. Um, he jumped right on board, and he's been somebody that's sort of held my hand uh, through this whole process and made it achievable. Um, you know, as far as doing other things like selling the book now i've i've taken a lot of that on myself with social media and i built my own website so the the uh, e-commerce shop that's on there i put all that together but that's just me being good with uh computers and graphic design but um as far as uh getting the book to market that was my hand was held quite substantially by paul daly <laughs> so, so talk to me um, a bit about yeah your your actual background then before this yeah so my i've been obsessed with um, golf course architecture since high school. Um, I always say it, uh, it's a bit of a sad story, but it's what got me into golf architecture was the passing of my grandfather when I was 16. Uh, he was 
obsessed with golf and gifted me as golf clubs and my way of sort of maintaining that connection with him was to play every day, sun up to sundown for the next two or three years. And it just, I was absolutely hooked on the game. And the thing that hooked me was the courses themselves. And my dad was, uh, he's retired now, but he was an environmental scientist with the Ministry of Environment here in Ontario for 40 years. Uh, and sort of his hobby at home was woodworking and painting. So he was quite the artist. Um, so I sort of had that environmental side with the golf obsession. And so golf architecture was kind of calling me <laughs> and my dad being quite smart and studious and knowing, um, sort of the political and policy framework here in Canada and knowing what you'd sort of need to do to, uh, to be a golf architect in the, the new emerging environmental restrictions that are coming out and things that you should know um sort of suggested instead of going into landscape architecture to start that i do a degree in planning and environmental design so i did that got my stamp as a planner and called up rod whitman and jeff Mingay back in uh 2007 when they were building sagebrush golf and sporting club in uh, kilchenna bc and Jeff basically told me over the phone that uh, they couldn't pay me much, but if I was willing to work hard and run a shovel, that I'm, it might go somewhere. So that was all the incentive I needed, and I went out there, and that was my that was my start in golf architecture. It was literally raking and shoveling and edging bunkers for uh, for uh, four months, four and a half months. So, uh, and obviously, I did a good enough job because they kept me on. Um. But from there, when the recession hit, we so we were doing – from there, I followed Rod Whitman around. We ended up at Cabot, started the Cabot uh, Lynx course, and then things were shut down. We, you know, The economic recession happened, and we were told to go home in the fall of uh, 2008. So I went back to planning and started considering how to sort of fill out my resume and um, one of my initial plans was to always go back and do a master's in landscape architecture. So, um, I did that starting in 2009 and did a part-time. So I continued to work in the industry, including leaving Rod Whitman and for a time actually working for a local, um, or an international, uh, golf course, uh, contracting company, just to sort of round out my skill set, not just on the design build side, but also the other side of the business. Um, and through doing both those, I managed to do some good projects and also finish my master's degree at Guelph. All right. So, so with that background, then what, what really made you want to then take, you know, take this leap and, and write, uh, a work like this or, or do something totally completely different like this? What was the, the driving force behind that? I've always been somebody that likes to challenge myself. I'm never happy sort of sitting around watching TV or movies at night. It was always um, pushing myself and growing myself as an architect. Um, I think one of the the benefits of working for a team like that Rod Whitman had developed at the time, including Jeff Mingay was Jeff Mingay was a, is still is quite the historian and he opened my world up to sort of that other side of the business and connected me with people like, 
Ian Andrew, websites like Golf Club Atlas, and you know, just took me further down that rabbit hole of golf architecture literature, and I just uh, went a little crazy. I, I <laughs> spent thousands of dollars on golf architecture books and sort of read everything I could. And this was before uh, doing my master's. So when I got to the my thesis, I had already sort of started with this idea that I wanted to turn whatever I did, you know, not just pump something out that would get me a piece of paper and sit in a in a library at uh, the University of Guelph, but I wanted something that I can then um, purpose for not just myself in this business, but also something that would serve the greater golfing population more and stand for something. So it took me a little while to figure out what that was, but I realized that it was really painting that bigger picture of what golf architecture is about so that everybody can understand why we are where we are right now. And maybe that we're not exactly as safe as we think we are. Cause really a lot of what's dictated golf architecture and the movements in it over time have been money and social tastes. It hasn't been what the golf architect necessarily wants because the popular architect coincides with, with what money is willing to pay. So um, it's just something that I wanted to, to really get out there and um, not really give back, but to really have be my message to the greater industry. So what would, uh, do you remember like a kind of lightning bolt moment or a watershed moment for you that, you know, whether it was a, one of the first books you read or, or uh, even just an idea that you came across or something that kind of, you know, shifted your perception about, about why this stuff was so important? Um, I think the, my, my, the first sort of mind blowing moment I had was actually in my undergrad at the University of Waterloo when I worked at uh, Westmount uh, Golf and Country Club in Kitchener, which is a Stanley Thompson course. And I'd worked at some pretty neat courses growing up, but they were more, you know, 60s to 90s era golf. And it was, uh, it was interesting to see this earlier form of architecture and the utilization of the ground contours and a site that was just completely better than anything else I'd seen. And it just, that really opened my mind up to why is this better than anything that's been built since? You know, why I'm playing all these newer courses. Why aren't they better? So that was the first question mark that sort of sat in my head. Um, and then obviously working with Rod Whitman and seeing him on a bulldozer, um, that just blew my mind open again. And as far as books, when I really started getting into that, if you've got, you know, some of the first books I picked up were um, uh, The Links by Robert Hunter or The Spirit of St. Andrews. The emotion, you know, they're not they're not deep dives into golf architecture, but the emotion that's put forward in those books is just completely incredible. If you if you don't read those and come away wanting to know more about golf architecture, I mean, you don't love golf. So I'm curious what the most challenging part of writing this book was because the way you've structured it is is really interesting. The first part is basically a breakdown, kind of decade by decade of. The way that all these different, you know, yeah. social and economic trends affected golf course design uh, and the people who did it, and then the second half is is basically, you know, kind of vignettes, yep. bios of of kind of every architect, you know, people probably would have heard of. 
Um, so there's a ton, obviously a ton of research that went into this. I'm, I'm curious what the most challenging aspect of, of digging all of this up was. Uh, well, firstly, like I'm not the first one to, to do a book like this. I got to give a little tip of the cap to uh, Ron Witten and Jeffrey Cornish, who tackled something similar to this um, when they released, um, well, first it was the golf course and then the architects of golf. Um, the, the later being the latter being released in uh, 93. So nothing had been really released like that since. And their book, as opposed to mine, really has sort of a, a brief history at the front and then details every golf architect that's ever worked in the industry in the back and lists their projects. Um, I thought that was a great effort and it was something that I flipped through every time I would visit a golf course. Um, but like I said, I thought it was almost didn't have enough detail in the front and maybe a little bit too much in the back for what I wanted to structure my book as. Um, and I didn't want to copy what they had done or try to update it because I think what they did is almost something that you can, it, it's never finished because the second you're done, somebody else has built something. Um, so when you talk about the two different sections of my book, when I sat down and was doing my thesis, I actually picked people in the back and I did much, I did many more profiles than you actually see in the book. But what I did is profiled everybody first, figured out, uh, and if you read the profiles, you notice that the way I write about people is not really detailing their projects, but I really detail their um, upbringing and how they got into golf architecture. So really figuring out what their influences were, what their education were, was, who were their mentors growing up, like how did they get into the business and how was their mind shaped to produce the works that they ended up doing as their portfolio. Um, and from that, I set up this massive, you know, I did all these profiles and then, okay, I was like, what do I do with this? So, you know, I have all these separate pieces, just like everything else that's been written, um, previous to my book or my thesis, how do I bring these together? And what I did was, okay, I need to figure out how, or what the influences were and how this pertains to the greater world and happenings in history. So what I did is I made timelines. I had this huge poster set up on my in my office that was literally an entire wall that detailed um British, American, Canadian, European economies, wars, uh when different courses were opened, allied art forms, so I did timelines for architecture, engineering and art. So, you know, the modernist movement, anything from uh minimalism to um just anything in art or architecture was on there. And what I was able to do from this then is go back to the profiles and break up um, everything by date and really then compare it to the timelines and draw conclusions from that. But everything was supported by historical fact. Um, so it really brought together this, it opened my eyes as to what was influencing these people and creating a bigger, bigger picture of this history. So that's where the front came from. I was able to take all that information and distill it and then go decade by decade through the history of golf course architecture, painting this picture. Well, I'm, I'm curious on that note, uh, what, what's, you know, one or two examples of, of these big trends that you're talking about that, that you could kind of, you know, distill down to a couple sentences. 
Okay. Um, so the big one is, um, and this was, this was something that was actually argued on Golf Club Atlas for years. It was what was the influence that allowed um, golf course architecture to be taken from Lynx Golf, where it was just fundamentally perfect and inspired the game and the growth of it. And when they started, when, when golf started uh, in the early or the late 1800s, started getting popular because of train and people being able to get to Scotland to see these money matches with the great Scottish pros, professionals of the time, Alan Robertson, the Morrisons, the Dunns, uh, the Parks. Um, nobody knew how to build golf. They just knew that Lynx land was perfect for it, but they couldn't replicate it elsewhere. Right. There was no real knowledge of how to do that. And Victorian landscape architecture principles at the time well, what was incorporated and that that was the the construction method that was used to build golf so greens were very square features were at a predictable distance off the tee and there were crop bunkers that were certain depth and you know certain uh measurements to them and everything was very um symmetrical and proportioned which is what victorian landscape architecture was all about and victorian architecture in general so what moved away from this was Horace Hutchinson, a golf writer at the time, who really commanded, commanded Country Life magazine and really dictated what was happening in the industry at the time. His friends were John Lowe, Bernard Darwin, Harry Colt, and he really sort of captained a new era. And how this happened was he actually took, because of sickness, took a year off from golf architecture. And it was known that he went and studied art. But I actually found out that he did a, um, um, a one-year mentor or protégéship under George Frederick Watts, an artist who was heavily influential in the arts and crafts movement over in England. Right. And what this was was a complete um, – not re- uh, it was a complete – um a front to to change the what had been what was transpiring with the industrial revolution at the time so it was taking everything back to handcrafted um sort of man-made things whether it be textiles or art or what have you and spending a year in this society and realizing what they were saying about nature and um sort of escaping the city and what parks should really be and what natural was, he took this sort of ideology back to golf architecture with him. And it's not surprising that Colt's the one that brought strategy and naturalism together because their mutual friend was John Lowe, who was pioneering um, strategy at walking. Not pioneering, but I mean, he was was realizing what was – he was adopting the principles – from the old course at St. Andrews. So it was just incredible to see this sort of exterior influence and how that actually had an effect in the world of golf architecture. Yeah. And that's, what's so cool about the book too, is, you know, you take one, one thing like that and that's, you know, one, one example from a 200 year history and it's, it's all broken out by decade, everything through the 1960s, 1970s, 1990s, you know, the, the, the whole thing is just, it's, it's really cool how you, how you did it. I, I really like how it's, how it's set up like that. And, and then part two, uh, that I mentioned is, is kind of diving deeper into 
each of these different architects and like you said up front kind of you know where they're from where they went to school what they were influenced by and uh, i'm curious you know you 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 had to obviously have a pretty good understanding of of these people going in i mean it's it's going to be all names that you know anyone who knows anything about architecture will recognize but I'm curious what maybe a couple examples of of things that you came across that were either, you know, hard to believe or things you hadn't known before or or stuff like that. Um yeah, I mean I I had a good understanding of a lot of these individuals beforehand, but it's amazing, you know, having read their their books, how little you actually don't know about their background because they're not writing about that unless it's a biography. Um I think the thing that shocked me was especially early on was how well educated these men were, which looking back now is not surprising. But you look at the number of lawyers, the number of doctors, um, these are very critical thinkers. And I think that has to do more with understanding why they were such good practitioners of golf course architecture than anything else. They were able to analyze things on a deeper level. Um, even people like you know Bill Corr and Rod Whitman now, who were mentors to myself, um, Bill has a background in Greek mythology. You know, it doesn't seem applicable when you look at how, you know, you're analyzing history and sort of thinking things on a deeper level. And Rod Whitman has a um, psychology major. You know, you, you look at and you look at these things and you're like, well, psychology and golf architecture, that that fits. You know, you're, you're trying to get into a golfer's head. So there's really no, to say that landscape architecture is the degree for, to become a golf architect, I think actually hurt um, golf architecture in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which is where everybody came from. Um, because really they weren't teaching that critical thinking and looking at sort of a broader picture. They're just telling you how to design something onto the landscape, which is important. But I think there's some other skills there that these these other individuals were learning, um, and it also had to do with society and times um, that they're that just general ideology of the eras that these people grew up in, and that's all expressed in the book. And that was something that really sort of surprised me that I didn't see coming was just so how how well these things fit together, their educations with um, where they came from. And what they did in golf architecture. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about it like that. Uh, I'm curious, kind of last question here. You you mentioned this, uh, you kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but you know, looking at kind of the current state of of uh, you know, I, I want to say golf architecture, but really, it's you know, the whole book is you know, looking at the current state of the world. I guess. Yeah. Uh, where do you kind of see things going from here? And you know, if you're writing a chapter about the the 2020s, uh, you know, where where do you predict that that headed i think uh, a lot of people are in the industry are already declaring and there's there's sort of ripples about this that we're in a second era of you know second golden age of golf course architecture um and i'm one of a couple people that sort of you know you know put the brakes on that comment a little bit <laughs> um i think that's wonderful to be saying and i think people like tom doak gil hans uh, Bill Corr, Ben Crenshaw, um, and numerous others and people that work for those individuals. And obviously Rod Whitman here in Canada, my mentor, um, have done incredible things and are doing what they can to be as varied as possible. 
what I'm seeing a lot of the same rugged aesthetics, um, this obsession with width that's going on right now. And it's funny because I think width is absolutely critical um, to golf architecture and something that hasn't been around for the last 10 years. But it's one of those things, well, since Sandhills, I guess. But it's one of those things that is almost going too far in the opposite direction right now. And some people are using it without understanding that um, variety is the absolute key to golf architecture. And whether that be the aesthetic presentation, um, the difference between individual holes on a golf course, um, the length of the holes, it is so important that everything be varied and just as varied as the landscapes that we use. Um, I think that's where golf architecture needs to continue going. Because if we want to, if we want to say that we're, or even try to justify that this is a second golden age, if you look at what was done in the twenties and the thirties, early thirties, um, and late thirties, you know, you look at uh, Prairie Dunes. Those offerings are just so varied and in tune with the landscapes, and those those architects, some of them, if you went from one course to the next that was done by the same person, you'd have no idea it was the same person. Sure. I don't. I don't feel like we we're attaining that yet. That quality, that diversity, that variety, and if you look at those original golf writings by Alistair McKenzie Colt, they stress that. And I don't think we've quite achieved that pinnacle of design yet that they were they were hitting. I think we're I think we're almost there. Um, not saying that I'm going to be the one to do it, but I think we have to have that. We have to open our eyes to the fact that we could always. We can push this further. I'm curious how so, um, I'm curious how you know the current uh, economic situation in golf would would compare to other eras that you maybe have have written about or read about. Um, you know, obviously, there's not a ton of of new courses being built right now, uh, which is probably why some of them you know kind of end up looking looking very similar to each other. I'm, I'm not sure if that's if yeah. that take seems you know on the rails to you or, or, uh, if you can kind of compare this to any other eras that maybe are in the book. Well, I definitely can. Cause if you look at, if you look at the 1920s and then thirties, where it obviously went into the great depression, if you look at what's happening now, you know, people are looking at golf and saying golf is failing. There's courses closing. Um, you know, is this a dying industry? You know, you hear all this stuff. And I'm like, no, it's not. This is this is the best thing that could have happened to golf, except what we experienced in the 90s and 2000s was a bit of a boom around Tiger. And unfortunately, there was, unlike the 20s, where there was just quality golf because it had been influenced and um, sort of propped up by what had been learned pre-World War I over in England with the Heathlands era and everything I had talked about before with Hutchison and Colt and the arts and crafts movement and golf architecture and learning how to build um, very natural and rugged golf courses that were in tune with uh, the environments that they were building them on and bringing in strategy. Those sort of philosophies were then exported to the United States after World War I because Britain was in ruins and it, it blossomed. And unfortunately, what happened is the Great Depression hit, World War II hit, and there was 15 years of just nothing in golf 
where unfortunately all that building knowledge was just allowed to dissipate. Right. And, and the people that sort of picked up the reins following World War II didn't embrace any of that knowledge. They went sort of in a different direction. They went their own direction. But that's what society was doing. They didn't want to think about, you know, the gruesomeness of World War II or the, the dismal years of the, the Depression. They wanted to look forward. So that's what everybody was doing. And that's, that's, that's really told well in the book and specifically through a couple key people. But when you look now, we've sort of gone through that little boom. We've had this um, economic downturn in the industry. And what's happened is just like the, the Depression, the best architects were allowed to keep working. And, you know, right at the end of the Depression, you had Prairie Dunes open. You have these incredible projects. The, the question is, what happens next? Is it, are we going to enter something that stops this growing knowledge again? And this is sort of the point of my book is that we need the message in the book is we need to understand our history to be able to build from it going forward. We can't allow golf architecture to just be dictated by external influences. We need to harness that knowledge and do everything we can to build great golf. So, you know, we talk about you hear everybody else talking about growing the game. This is how we do it. We know what the game really is and the fundamentals for it in our own history so that we can ensure its history going forward. Well, that seems like a, as good a place as any to, uh, to cut it off. Thanks so much for the time. What, uh, how can people get their hands on the book? Well, like I said, I've got uh, my own website, uh, cuttengolf.com. So that's C-U-T-T-E-N golf.com. And uh, there's a couple tabs on there, one's book and one shop, and um, tells you all about the book and how, how you can order it. All right. Well, perfect. Well, Keith, thanks for all the background and uh, and uh, congratulations on, on getting this off the ground and, and running. Thanks, DJ. Appreciate you having me on. You got it.